Before we begin our main event, a brief reminder that Historically Thinking is now on Patreon. When you become a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room on Patreon, you not only support the podcast's weekly operations, from web hosting to scheduling to audio editing, you also enable us to do more in the future. Benefits that you'll receive as a Common Room member include a special weekly podcast, podcasts dropped in advance when possible, special events online and in the future live, input on topics, guests, and questions, competitions and prizes, and more. We will continue to produce our regular podcasts, which will still be available for free on Mondays in all your regular podcast feeds. We hope you'll enjoy being part of the Historically Thinking Common Room at Patreon. Just go to Patreon and search for Historically Thinking. Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast that's not only about the past and all its complexity, but also about how historians write history and how everyone can think about it. For more information about this or any episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can also sign up for our twice-a-month newsletter. Hello, Postcards writes today's guest, Lydia Pine, have left an indelible imprint on the history of human communication unmatched by any other material medium. They owe their success to the decentralization of their manufacture, as well as the physical material connection they created between sender and recipient. Postcards and their digital descendants continue to be about personal connections. We recreate old social networks, old postcard social lines, if you will, with every post of a digital picture. In her book, Postcards, The Rise and Fall of the World's First Social Network, Lydia Pine describes the history of the postcard and those connections it created between senders and recipients. Lydia Pine is a writer and historian who has previously written about how phony things teach us about real stuff, a history of seven celebrity human fossils and what they taught their descendants, and bookshelves. Lydia Pine, welcome to Historically Thinking. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. So um, let's talk about origin stories. Uh, is there an inventor of the postcard or is there are there many inventors? Is it one of those, is it a kind of technology that all those things like come into being like cheap paper, color printing, and then boom, off to the races? Yeah, so there are a lot of really fun origin points for postcards. And as you point out, there are a lot of things that are just sort of in the technological milieu, uh, different points in history that really set that really set up the possibility of postcards. And so we have a couple of um, sort of firsts that ping in the history of postcards, one being Theodore Hook in the 1840s sending a postcard um, in the UK or in England at that point. And... Um, that's sort of credited as the first postcard. There's um, Hartman, Dr. Hartman in Austria, also in the 1840s, that's credited a lot of the time with um, with having the sort of mass, the idea of doing this on a mass scale. And so it sort of depends, what do you mean by a postcard for it to be what is the first? Because if we start picking at that idea of a postcard is a material artifact that we're sending and receiving to each other, then we can then we can sort of put that idea of postcards back even further in human history. Okay. So you mean what's the earliest postcard then? That's that's like I would say that we see the most of the most of the earliest postcards to the 1840s. Um, the, okay. the, so, but, the, what we would recognize today as a postcard. And then um, as, as the decades unfold since then, we start seeing a lot of um, we start seeing a lot of the parts of a postcard that we would identify being codified. 
Uh, for example, having a picture on the front and having a blank on the back. Um, on the back, uh, the, the idea of having a divide down the back and having a specific area for, um, for, with lines for an address um, and switching which is, the address which is not from like the a back law. to the front. No. Yeah, there's no law. It's just like, it's so a actually, there cultural was. convention. Oh, oh, sorry. There is a law. No, I was thinking about no. this. So, yeah. So <laughs> in the early days of postcards, one of the big struggles to, to sort of have them launch into their popularity was the fact that um, the, the U.S. Post Service, Postal Service had to okay and had to legalize the idea that there was this, this kind of piece of mail was a legal piece of mail to send and receive. Um, and so, so it is very standardized and it takes a while for images to be allowed to be put on the postcards, at least in U.S. postcards. Okay. Because um, there was always that story, I'm so old, that we used to want to do things like send a banana in the, e in the mail. You know, you know, that, or I think that's the, a timeless, like, that's a timeless, timeless thing for humans, for humans here. So, um, yeah. Or when like back in the eighties, when college admissions started going nuts, there was the kid who sent the university of Maryland or someplace a shoe. So now he has oh one foot goodness. in the door. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Very clever. Um, but yeah, yeah. But that was, that was sort of the, the charm of the, when you discovered that, like usually when you're about eight or nine, that you can send lots of different things as long as you put postage on it just through the mail. Very, very exciting. I, and I guess that has an, that's, this is part of the origin story of that too. That they probably I think didn't so. always And do so that. postcards. Yeah. And so there was, there were, um, there were laws, there were traditions, there were these things that sort of established what, what was an acceptable postcard to send through the mail. Um, and there were also early um, concerns about sending something salacious or inappropriate or, or whatever. And so there's this sort of element like of, Fish, sure. There's example, a sort of element of control fish. that also goes with um, with what can go on a postcard. Mm -hmm. um, and in the, uh, excuse me. Um, yeah, I think that that's probably a good, that's probably a good way to wrap up that. So story. It, it also struck me, you spent some time talking about postal systems going back to you know, Herodotus, but I realized uh, I'm always fascinated by um, certain things which are not technologies, but are cultural innovations that also develop like a technology, like high school, for example, you know, mm -hmm. that's like, I've been thinking, people always talk about the importance of the car, but actually in, ter in terms of teenagers, the concept of teenager, but it seems to me high school is an even bigger kind of <laughs> it, it, it sort of change in social convention that takes time to develop. Um, postal services also have to get to a certain, it's not just the technology of paper and printing, postal services have to get to a certain capacity, standardization. Um, it sort of has know, to have that kind of social cachet in order for in order for people to be able to participate and for everyone to be able to participate that these aren't private networks that these are mm -hmm. these are public these are public infrastructure elements and so I, I think that we see that start tracking with a lot of sort of um, modern nation state building um, of sort yes. of what makes what makes a modern nation state we see the postal service and the expectations that go with that um, be part of that and then postcards postcards come along for that that kind of ride. This is an interesting point. It's like, um, and this is like the, a political culture point too. I mean, the postmaster general used to be an important cabinet position, uh, which is kind of crazy to us now. I mean, that hasn't been the case since like the 1960s, but uh, uh, Lincoln once said, you know, I should spend more time attending to the civil war, this great war, but I have to appoint a postmaster for Hanover, Indiana. 
Um, you know, being appointing postmasters is a huge political patronage job. Um, these are all this. So this is actually postcards are woven into all sorts of things. If you at, at both politics and cultural systems. I really feel like that if there's any kind of historical or cultural thread in the last 150 years that you start pulling on, that if you look hard enough, you will find postcards somewhere in that story, which is a fascinating, a fascinating aspect to these artifacts. Um, how did postcards save the United States Postal Service? Speaking about postal services, you tell this is speaking a of part postal of services, yeah. right? And so, so at the point that I was really interested in thinking about postcards and infrastructure, I started digging into um, I started digging into several different histories of postcards. And the historian Daniel Gifford has written a brilliant book about uh, American holiday postcards specifically. And as part of the research for that, uh, Dr. Gifford had chronicled this this um, this moment in 1909 where the postal system in the United States is verging on bankruptcy. And it's just, it's, it's teetering, it's ready to go. And then two years later, the U.S. Postal Service is actually running a surplus, which is astonishing. Um, and sort of the, there's this question of how do you go from having, from being near bankruptcy to being able to run a surplus? And Gifford's research indicates that it's through the use of postcards, that the postcards are being sent in the United States at such a rate and such a scale, and they are so profitable in that, in that postal system that they're not heavy, they're not arduous for post, for post carriers to have to deliver all of these things, that it's this perfect intersection um, to be able to turn around the fate of the U.S. Post Service um, in 1909. And it was such a fascinating story. And I felt like that really, really crystallized to me how important and significant these artifacts were in their, in their turn of the 20th century context. That I think that today it's easy to look at them and to say, oh, this is a curio. This is something that's kind of a throwback or, oh, I'll send this postcard. And it's kind of it's kind of off kilter a little bit. It's like slow communication and it's it's a cool thing. But but it's interesting to think about them in that 1909 context being completely integral. Mm -hmm. um, let's talk about postcards as objects. And in fact, yeah. this is so great on an audio podcast. I have examples this is why we should be. This is why the the pros say we should be taping videotape. So this is a, a postcard, <laughs> which is my grandfather, in okay. some kind of Model T, um, right? Uh, and it's uh, just him looking at the camera. But it looks the, like it's it looks one of those like, real. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, it's, it, lo it looks like a snapshot. Mm -hmm. I thought it was a snapshot. I flip it over, and on the back, by golly, there's the hole legal cultural convention of what a postcard is. It's the dividing right, line. And it, it, says, says, it looks like it says postcard right across the it top. It says postcard just in case you miss out on that. <laughs> it's got the dividing line. It's got place stamp here, name and address here, corresponds here. And he's just written from your brother, Herbert H. Bertha Stanke, Academy, South Dakota on the address line. That's it. There's no stamp. There's no uh, what's what is it when the stamp is um, the the cancellation um, right. for the stamp cancellation. There's no cancel. It right. was never sent. It was, maybe he just gave it. So what's the story behind this? That this is like a personal snapshot, which is a postcard. That's not what we think of as postcards, is it? <laughs> I love that example. I was I'm so excited that you were able to to bring something here as a bit of show and tell to, to sort of spark <laughs> this discussion. 
So the history of real picture postcards or real photo postcards, um, as that particular style and genre of postcard is called, um, is really interesting. And it tacks with the development of personal cameras through Kodak and other um, other cameras that are that are um, becoming personalized. And it sort of lets people have this portability and mobility to to be able to take pictures. And with the camera, concurrent with that, there were also uh, developing or uh, machines for developing the pictures. Um, the Kodak, I think it released one that was called the Grabber and a bunch of other different kinds of uh, developer, developing uh, machines uh, that would print the picture to postcard. So instead of on photo stock, it would actually print it to the postcard stock. So if you were to, I would venture to guess that if you pick up that picture that you showed me, it feels different than a picture, like a traditional photograph. Um, it feels like oh, yeah. there's a little bit yeah. more heft to the, to the paper maybe. And that's because it's actually mm -hmm. printed on that kind of postcard specific paper that Kodak and other companies developed to go with this idea. And what it, and there was um, the, the, the machines that would develop these uh, postcards could be personal that you could actually sort of take it with you going places. Um, and I came across some accounts of people going on travels in 19, 20 and sort of having that kind of that kind of personal printer as you if you were um, that they could take with them. There are other accounts where people could take the, uh, the 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 pictures and then send them back to Kodak to have Kodak send them their postcards. Or if you're traveling, that there would be a local photography shop that they could also develop these postcards. And so I think that it became I think that it became a similar behavioralism or mannerism that we would today sort of maybe do with selfies. Like, hey, we're on vacation, we're taking this selfie, or hey, I'm taking this picture because I want to commemorate this thing. Um, and here, the material expression of that is that it's printed on a postcard. That's, um, it, you can see how even in the first beginnings of the digital photo photographic revolution, way back in the 90s, even Kodak was still going back to that well. I remember there were various things where they're like, you know, send the digital file and then we'll print this and send it. I think. Apple did that for a while as a thing, you know, the, you could print up photo albums. That's a, it was a very old, but it was a very old idea. Well, we still see that today. I mean, if you are assembling your, your, your scrapbook of stuff and you want a printed book, you can still sort of, yeah. there's still that sort of sending it out and then having it come back. And that sort of, how does the, how does the life of the image play out and sort of its material expression at the end? And I think that that dynamic is one that we see a lot in the history of communication. Mm -hmm. This, as an object, you begin to realize that there are there are enormous constraints to the postcard, and yet, as you show in the lavishly, beautifully illustrated book, there are many, many creative ways of dealing with constraints, and, and constraints does lead to creativity so often. So the the fact that you can only write a very short message. But the fact that, you know, at least growing up in my village, George Arnold, rest in peace, just died, local postmaster, everyone believed that whatever you sent on a postcard would be known throughout the village. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. Um, so that postcards are semi-public. Um, yes. Uh, and so a uh, friend of the show, Michael Connolly, Dr. Curmudgeon, who I strongly believe has an entire manuscript devoted to the social history of postcards in the progressive area era burning a hole in a drawer of his desk. Um, he asks about the what are the sort of the the constraints of the postcard and how they inspire creativity. Like the like 
like, do people use brief coded language? I think he's found that on postcards and stuff like that. Yeah, so there are. That's a really cool question because there are so many different ways to to go about answering it. And I think the the short, simple answer is yes, it inspires creativity. But later on in the in the life in the history of postcards, again, sort of going back to the at the beginning, postcards weren't allowed to have pictures put on them, and so that's a later development in the history of postcards. But by the time you get to sort of the Victorian or the Edwardian postcards, or um, uh, American holiday postcards or things like that, we do start seeing creativity in inks. We start seeing creativity in images. Um, we certainly start seeing them uh, postcards being used as propaganda. And so sometimes that is less coded language. That's pretty that's pretty blunt about what the purpose of that is, whether it's pro-suffrage movement or uh, pro-progressive movement or, or whatever, um, that there are definitely campaigns that are run through postcards like that. Um, on a material level, however, one of the things that I found to be the most surprising in my research was how many different ways postcards could be made. And I'm thinking specifically of some that I included um, as images that were part of my great-grandfather's collection that are from World War I. Um, where after he served in World War I, he had brought them back with him. And uh, they're embroidered. And so they're these really thick postcards that have beautiful embroidery on them. And they say like a remembrance from a soldier, or they have flags embroidered on them. There's one that says happy new year. And I was so struck by the idea that it's, that it's this small rectangle. And then what could you do with that rectangle? Um, and here's an example of embroidery. Um, there was one set of postcards that I looked at at the New York public library that actually has pressed seaweed glued to them so that you go to Point Reyes, California, at the turn of the 20th century, you can buy a postcard that has an actual piece of seaweed to send to somebody. And so I do start seeing a lot of that material creativity in addition to um, the sort of art history or image coding kind of creativity. So the story of Walter Horn um, was one that was absolutely mind-blowing to me. Um, and again, I came across um, this example from, um, it's called Borderland Fury, um, a history of postcards that, um, that focuses on the Texas and Mexico border. Um, and Walter Horn um, was an entrepreneurial fellow. Um, I guess that is the, the least judgy way to describe him um, here at the beginning of the story. And he goes to El Paso, Texas um, at the beginning of the uh, Mexican Revolution. And he sort of wants to wants to make his fortune. And he realizes that that postcards are an incredibly lucrative business, especially real picture postcards, sort of going back to what we were talking about, that you can you can take these pictures yourself, you can take pictures from others, you can reprint pictures that other people have taken, um, and then have them have them be able to be sent out from from what you're seeing here on the border of Texas and Mexico during the Mexican Revolution. And so there are some of the Walter Horn images that um, show uh, Texans, sort of El Pasans on the top of buildings looking down at the fighting below them, um, that it really shows there's this sort of spectacle of, of skirmish here. Um, and Walter Horn ends up selling a lot of his postcards to U.S. troops that are stationed um, 
that are that are part of the conflict and are stationed around there. Um, and for a lot of people, the only image that they have, because this is sort of very early days of nascent photojournalism, the only image that they have of what's happening with the Mexican Revolution come from these postcards that are that are be- these pictures that are being taken and then being sent back either by soldiers um, to be reprinted in newspapers or yeah yeah so this is already we're seeing the um, multipolarity of the postcard this is what's amazing to me is that yep. we've got these you know snapshots of my grandfather sent to his my his sister and but then we've also got pictures of battles of the Me- of the Mexican photojournalism all these things can be put on this very small format and sent through the mail. And one of the things that's so fascinating to me about the story of Walter Horn and um, and his images, some of them are truly, truly horrific. Um, and that he had he had images of lynchings, he had images of mass casualties um, in a battlefield, burned and charred he bodies. Had, you said, I mean, this. Is- yeah, he had burnt and charred. I mean, they're they're truly horrific, horrific postcards. Um, and the other thing that I found to be really, really interesting about this is because it's a picture, we sort of have this implicit trust of it, that this is documenting, that this is that early photojournalism, that this is, I can't be here, but I can trust this picture that's here. And there are a lot of examples where Horn has manipulated the pictures to, to change the scene or to change things. And so the real picture postcard in some of his, in some of his work is not perhaps as real as, as it might have mm-hmm. been. And so that I think creates this really interesting dynamic for for the image that we're which we at. could I mean you could say the same thing about you know Matthew Brady or Alexander Gardner's pictures at Gettysburg right I mean so many I I, I think the majority of them are sta- their body, bodies are rearranged and placed in a certain way people pose et cetera et cetera et cetera mm-hmm. um, yeah exactly what's what's interesting I mean I've I've shown there's a online collection I'll put in the show notes of uh, the really awful, horrible, racial, racist lynching postcard genre. And I think um, insofar as, you know, millennials and, 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 and Zs know what a postcard is, they know what a postcard is. They still know what a postcard is. But that since we've overlaid tourism postcards as what a postcard is over a postcard, we don't understand sort of the photojournalism. I didn't understand uh, the photojournalism yeah. side of the postcard. So um, they're, st- they're still salacious and awful. And it's very interesting to see the the ways in which um, it shows you a completely different emotional valence towards a brutality in, say, 1910 um, that, that yeah. everyone seems to have. Um, uh, but it, it's so widespread uh, in so many different ways. Nevertheless, we have to realize that in the end, a postcard is a picture that can be sent through the mail. It's not a it's not a, it's not a tourist. It doesn't have the valence of tourism only. It doesn't have the valence mm-hmm. of you know snapshot only. It, does, it has many things that a picture that can be sent through the mail. Yeah, that it really is building out a social network, yeah. and you're going to you're going to have these these nodes and these these ways of communicating that between people. That yeah, what it it maybe you're communicating about a tourist experience, but maybe you're also communicating these these horrific ideas of white supremacy yeah. maybe you're also trying to communicate the um the the uh jingoism um that you have about the uh mexican revolution that there are so many sort of horrific ways that postcards can be part of that social network and i think that it's important to realize that it's not all holiday yeah. postcards. and because also it's 
now that I think about it, it makes sense. There's so many postcards and they reflect the people. These are the people objects in that number in the billions. Yes. Yeah. yes. So they reflect. That if you have reflect, billions and billions. They reflect millions just, of different perspectives. Yeah. Yeah. That um, yeah. I joke that um, for every Instagram picture, that if you were to show me a picture or a post that somebody had made on Instagram, I joke that given enough time, I could find a corollary postcard. Yeah. I think for for the posing, the sentiment, the intentionality that I think that there really are that this is the that postcards are the social network that set up a lot of our expectations for other kinds of mass communication. So let's um, kind of there's still postcards. Let's talk about suffragette postcards. You had okay. And it's another weird thing I've just shown. Well, at least Lydia's seen it. Pictures of my grandfather in a car. I swear on the book, you had a picture of a suffrage parade in Vineland, New Jersey. And I think my grandmother's in one of those pictures. Oh my goodness. Yeah, no way. Because it was a picture what? of, it is, uh, there's a girl that looks a yeah. lot like her. It's a picture of girl suffragettes. My mom, uh, my grandmother's a big suffragette and you know ran for office when she was like 22, right after the women got the vote. Um, so it, and she, okay, you've made my day. Yeah, I know. It's and really, it was really, really reaffirmed it was, my thesis that postcards are personal. It was really uncanny. Like, I feel like this is such a fantastic example. Yeah, oh, my goodness. It was really uncanny. But so the suffrage movement, all these, you know, okay, lynchings are, well, in some ways, lynchings are progressive, but we, we won't have to get into that. Um, if you're, you're a Southern progressive, you're all about lynchings. Um, so there's a really interesting, since, since um, postcards are, occurring at the moment of progressivism broadly understood, they end up enforcing and describing how people are reacting to progressivism. And one of those is suffragism. And I guess prohibition too. We didn't even, we could get into that. I mean, there must be, these must be huge genres of, these are huge genres of postcards. Absolutely. And I would say if there is a specific genre of postcard that, um, that folks are interested in, I would be willing to bet that there is a book about that specific <laughs> genre, that specific printer, that specific genre. Um, but to answer your question about the suffrage movement, yeah, we see a lot of postcards um, that surround the suffrage movement. We also see a lot that are right around um, the push to uh, for women to be able to get uh, to vote, that there's a huge push of postcards and a huge amount of postcard campaigns that go with that. Um, but I will also say that sort of if postcards allow for a multiplicity of views, there are huge uh, archives of anti-suffrage postcards mm -hmm. um, that are that are pretty much everything that you would expect um, an anti-suffrage. Pretty much everything that you would expect somebody on the opposite side of that argument to take. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, that that if it's an opinion and you have access to a postcard, I am pretty sure that you can put that opinion on that postcard. Yeah, um, let's talk about. Um boosterism, um, which is kind of advertising. And this, uh, this is another thing that uh, Michael Conley pointed out is that so many postcards are about pride of local place, you know, come, and they're like, this is our wonderful, shiny new town. Um, you know, we just put in streets and telephones and come live here. It's clean. It's neat. You know, good people. That's mm -hmm. part of it. And, you know, the, it, that segues so naturally into the rest of the advertising culture of the time. Uh, you point out like when people are on a tour going off when they're leaving for a destination. And I thought about how true this is. This was true until relatively recently. 
you were surrounded by postcards. I mean, if you had the foresight uh, to bring a roll of stamps in your pocket, which I never did, I was eight, but you could like go around and buy a postcard at every stage of your journey. When you got to say the Philadelphia International, buy a postcard, here it is. You know, Delta is going to give you a postcard when you're on the plane, showing the plane, you know, you send that postcard. The hotel, when you get there, the motel, everyone has a postcard on the desk, send the postcard, right? I mean, mm-hmm. so that you're mm-hmm. you're mm-hmm. chronicling and realize, oh my God, it is a text messaging. It's like continually text messaging where you are because that's what you're doing. Yeah, it's all. It's yeah, all. So it's, just, it's like it's like you've printed out the the text messages and just put them through the mail. Now. Yeah, yeah. So this is a, a continual. Um, so it's it's always relating. This is this is gets to your point about also the the the, um, the ways in which there's there's um, a continual physical material manifestation of the place that you are in right now. This is what, is what One of the things that has really struck me in the in the writing in the research and writing of this book is how specifically ho- postcards are tied to place. Mm-hmm. That I expected them to be tied to time. That okay, these are old timey. These are really old timey postcards. These are more recent. And I could kind of look through the technology of printing, and that's that's interesting. But what was really unexpected to me was to realize how much postcards are tied to place as well that it's sort of this intersection of time and place and person. Yeah. I mean, I've got, I right behind him pulling up. This is some, a bunch of pictures of churches from Dixon County, Nebraska. I'm sure it's a postcard that was glued to something. Yep. It looks, it like, looks a like a postcard for sure. It's boring. I mean, it's like, <laughs> and there's, I've got, otherwise I got a picture of like a camp, a summer camp. Someone sent to my grandfather, I think. Again, it's like a, mm-hmm. it's a building in the woods. What, what's the point of that? It's not, it's not a picture of a waterfall or anything, but this is saying, I am in this place. Mm-hmm. You know, this is that yeah. place. It's, it's, sort of, it's sort of authenticating this experience. Yeah. Or, yeah. And because of that decentralization of manufacture that you're describing, everyone can get in this game. It can happen. Everyone can. Certainly for the real picture postcards like that. Yeah. So other question about, question about class. This is also the moment when um, certainly in English-speaking countries, people are getting to literacy. Uh, um, there's an immense explosion of literacy. Uh, there's an, this is the best time to be a freelance writer in history. Um, there's people reading everything. We talked about this, Jonathan Rose, The Intellectual Life of the British Working Class. Postcards are actually part of that sort of explosion in literacy. This is like, um, this is a, a sort of working class, middle class expression of wealth, but also it's a way of connecting. Um, the upper classes don't need to use postcards. It's interesting. I think that there, I think that one of the things that has been really interesting for me to think about is how egalitarian postcards mm-hmm. are. That as you say, that they really can cut across social class and that they can cut across social experience. And so we certainly have examples of postcards being sent and received across all social classes. And one of the really fun ones to explore with that was a, um, for me to see with that was a history of ocean liner postcards. (laughs) And you could see, yeah, again, sort of the, you name it, it is, there is a history of postcards about that. But um, in the ocean liner postcards, the author had actually transcribed the messages um, that were on the back of these, these postcards that were being sent at uh, 1920 or so. 
and you have postcards that are talking about um, having dinner with the captain. And then you have again, sort of like, "Hey, I'm 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 going to Australia, and I'm I'm immigrating to Australia," and that and it's a it's a much more sort of um, working class message that is associated on the back of some of those postcards. And so, what I found fascinating was that they are cheap, disposable media that are available ubiquitously. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, uh, anyone can play this game. Exactly. Um, let's go back to circle back to place. You have a whole chapter devoted to really, I mean, it's very lyrical. Uh, you have a lyrical, like three paragraphs of dead countries. Uh, and it's postcards from places that no longer exist. So this gets us back to, um, in many ways, these postcards are the best extant monuments to these places that no longer exist. I love that turn of phrase. That's really fantastic. Um, and that's what that's what struck me about these postcards from places from countries that that are not countries anymore that they've been reorganized um, that they have been dissolved they have been reimagined um, and I came to this realization actually while I was uh, working at the New York Public Library archives um, that they have a fantastic picture collection there postcard collections there and um, I was going through some of the the card catalogs full of these postcards. And I looked and I saw, oh, you have postcards from Czechoslovakia. That's interesting. And so I looked at the dates of when they were sent. And I said, okay, yeah, that makes sense. That would be from Czechoslovakia. And I looked at some of the other, and that, that got me thinking about what happens to the postcards once the countries are no longer countries. And I started looking at how um, the library had archived and shelved some of these other, these other countries. And I found that what they had done was to just sort of cross out the name and flip it over. And the, the divider for the, um, the area read uh, Sri Lanka instead of Ceylon or other examples where um, they just sort of crossed out what the country used to be and then put on the divider sort of, OK, this is how we would know it today. But the postcards that are in that that archive in that section, they're still they're still from that 1911. They're still from that 1914. They're still from that nominally colonial context um, for a lot of places, but also but also sort of documenting the fluidity of geography. So let's get back to um, let's let's get back to uh, to tourism. Mm-hmm. Um, our, you, you talk about performative tourism. Um, and I know, I, I already know this about you. You don't want to be reductionistic. Um, so there must be something more going on than just performative tourism, right? I mean, what, I mean, people are performing their tourist experience. Okay. That takes us a little bit, you know, but I'm just to, to go on. There's a, at some point at Colonial Williamsburg, people decided to interpret everything that you saw as this is a way of establishing status. Now, like I'm all about the history of status and all the rest. I, I class and you know elites always rising and always anxious or blah blah blah. Sure, got yeah, sign me up. But sometimes, and let me just suggest this: it's mm-hmm. crazy. People like things because they're pretty or even beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and I. You know, having sent a few postcards when I was younger, I know that I would pick out something that I thought my grandmother would find pretty, you know, mm-hmm. as I was sending her a picture of waterfalls from yep. somewhere or whatever. This is this yep. is the wonderful stuff that we're seeing now. That, okay, that is performative. 
but that I'm not sure that performative, you know, car gets us all the way to the destination. Yeah, that's a really interesting observation. And I guess that I would I would come back with the idea that it's it's again sort of performative, but maybe looking for those personal connections. And it's the personal connection that is, oh, this is pretty, or oh, I saw this and I thought of you here at this place. And so I think that I had really wanted to emphasize the performativity of postcards to get away from just doing basic image analysis of, oh, here's what the image on the postcard, here's what this is saying, here, but because I feel like that's what the artist is saying, or that's what the culture writ large is saying. But I felt like it wasn't necessarily explicitly what the person who was sending the postcard or receiving the postcard was saying. And I felt like the question of performativity became a way of, of sort of distancing from the manufacturer of the postcard with a person actually mm-hmm. sending the postcard. Mm-hmm. That's okay. That's, that's nice. Um, I was just thinking as the last, well, okay. Last 20 minutes, many times we could be talking about Instagram because of course the great critic critique the great cultural critique, and if I read another one about Instagram as performance, I might start to engage in acts of self-harm, um, right? Because <laughs> it's not one of the easiest cult- cultural criticisms. I'm not saying it's wrong, but it's- But maybe there's more. Um, what, what more could we do with this? But, but here's the weird thing is, is that now, you know, I was joking about uh, our late postmaster and where mm-hmm. I grew up. But now Instagram is explicitly designed to be a postcard that everyone can read. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, so, but yet, yet so many of the things that we've talked about apply. So it's as if there, there was hardly a hiccup in the transition from postcards to, to Instagram and to, and to Twitter for that matter. The, mm-hmm. the limitation of, you know, being able to write on the back of a postcard. What's that? That's Twitter. I mean, it's the mm-hmm. same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but so the, it's really weird to contemplate the similarities when you realize all the, it's probably maybe easier for us to see the differences, but then it's also weird to see the similarities as well. You must've thought about this a lot. It Yes. That is the short answer to your question is yes. Yes. I did think about this a lot and it was interesting to, um, to really delve into what is this, what is the part of the social network that makes this similar? What is the point? It's the point of the connection. And that's, I think, where the Instagram, Twitter postcard parallels really, really are strong. Um, I think that there is a, there is a point to be made that postcards are a different kind of communication and a different kind of, um, network building because they're, they have a one-to-one ratio that it's one person sending nominally to one person receiving. Whereas a tweet or an Instagram post is much more public, that it's not necessarily directed to, to one person that maybe the better parallel would be like a direct message or a DM. Um, mm-hmm. That's that sort of one-to-one. Um, and so I can appreciate that there are some, there are some differences then in sort of the, who can read, who can see, who, where is, where is all of this going? But I come back to the point that we were talking about before, that postcards are nominally public, that they're sort of semi-public to begin with by nature of their construction. And so I think that there is, there are some, um, some really 
good parallels to to the contemporary social networks and this this very early one. So um, there's a question I've never asked before. What should I have? What should I have already asked you? What should we have? What should we be talking about that we haven't talked about yet? Oh, that's a really good question. Sort of like if I could, if I, what would I want people to to take away from yes. postcards here? Hmm. All right, I do have a couple of things. One is that postcards mm-hmm. are personal, and that's I think easy to see. I love, I love that people show me pictures of their old postcards. I love that people want to share these these postcard stories that they have, um, that they want to talk about postcards that are significant or that they remember. And so it's, it's really, I, I didn't, I was not expecting that to happen to me when I started reading your book. And then I felt like a complete goober. Uh, here I am no. pulling them out of the box. It, 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 it was completely accident. I have to say to listeners that I read the book and then it just happens after like <laughs> my, my grandfather died in 1993 and it's been some time for me to get a hold of his massive sort of paper papers. He, he saved everything. And here I am and I'm starting to go through them. And of course, all I can see I have the postcard glasses on. All I can see are postcards yeah. and, and, and the analysis of postcards. And so I would, I would emphasize that postcards are personal. And I would also emphasize that postcards are not completely dead yet. And I think that that's another sort of misconception um, that mm-hmm. is easy to walk away with here in the 21st century is that Instagram has replaced, Twitter has replaced the postcard. And I think that it, I think the better descriptor might be displaced rather than replaced. Um, because we still see postcards being sent and mailed and created around the world. And it's going to be different than it was 100 years ago, but they're still here. And the example that, um, that I used in the book were postcards that were incredibly popular during the 2016 and 2020 election, encouraging people to vote. Mm-hmm. And so um, I would say that postcards are still sort of having this, this cachet and this, this kind of life here in the 21st century. I was um, interested. You had a section about uh, just to wrap up. Uh, you had a section on are postcards valuable, um, and how valuable are postcards? Um, these are billions have been sent, so it's it's a large stream in which to pan for gold. I, it's hard to find. I think the the sort of Rembrandt equivalent of your, of your <laughs> postcard, maybe, because postcards exist as objects of mass production. That that's their whole point mm-hmm. is to be this copy. And so if you're thinking about postcards, I think, as art and looking for a singularity, that's where it's difficult. The singularity, I think, in postcards occurs because of that personal connection, that it's your tie to the, you, you took this mass object and you tied it to a time and a place. But um, yeah, other than that, the, as the Antique Roadshow points out, that this is one of the most common objects that they have go through. And, and there are some valuable Postcards, but again, they're going to be valuable because of that personal connection, because they were sent yeah, by you, someone famous. Yeah, I mean, even Walter H. Horn's postcards. I guess if you had a collection of two thousand of them, that would be valuable. But it's not. It's because but it's of valuable the sort of as a collection. Interest. Yes, exactly. As a yeah. 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 Well, this has been uh, delightful, Lydia Pine, author of Postcards: The Rise and Fall of the World's First Social Network. Thank you so much for being part of Historically Thinking. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much for having me. Just a brief reminder. If you're listening to Historically Thinking on the website, that's great. But for your convenience, you can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Pandora, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, GeoSavin, Podchaser, TuneIn, Deezer, and there are more. In fact, 
Wherever there are podcasts, there you can find Historically Thinking. While great reviews are wonderful on whatever platform you want to write them, the best possible review that you can give us is to forward the podcast to a friend you think will find it interesting. You can also follow us on Twitter at hist underscore think or on Facebook 